Welcome to Law in the Family, a production of the Pennsylvania Bar Association Family Law Section, providing insights for lawyers about the practice of family law in Pennsylvania. The information shared during this podcast is for general information purposes only. Nothing in this podcast should be taken as legal advice for any individual case or situation. This information is not intended to create, and receipt or listening does not constitute an attorney-client relationship. The opinions expressed are those of the hosts and the podcast guests, and don't necessarily represent those of the Pennsylvania Bar Association. Welcome to Law and the Family, where we discuss issues and topics related to the practice of family law in Pennsylvania. I'm Aaron Weems, a family law attorney in Fox Rothschild's Blue Bell Montgomery County office. And today my guest is Mary Kay Kelm. Mary Kay is a partner with the law firm of Kilcoin and Kelm LLC in Montgomeryville, Montgomery County. Mary Kay concentrates her practice in civil litigation, zoning, and today's topic is state planning and administration. Mary Kay, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Aaron. Happy to be here. Uh, Mary Kay, I thought you'd be a great guest to have on because you have both dealt with the family law world, but your one of your main focuses of your practice is estate litigation. And my outside looking in impression is that there is some commonality and some crossover between these two practices. So I thought you might be a great person to help us kind of dive into a little bit of what we need to know as family law attorneys about that type of practice, uh, what we should be aware of as practitioners. And frankly, when we should call somebody like you to get us out of a jam that might occur with one of our cases. So why don't we start with the with kind of the broad question. Give us a little bit of a primer about what estate litigation entails. So estates and administration and litigation are helping families just like family law is helping families. But you're helping them at different stages. Generally, you're dealing with a family who is grieving over a deceased member and trying to administer that deceased member's wishes by way of a will or whatever estate planning documents they had in place before they passed. Estate litigation arises when there are issues related to the administration, perhaps that the executor may need clarity on or that particular heirs may challenge. So we have an orphan's court division and, you know, litigation isn't common in every case, Aaron, but it's akin to family law in that it is court directed and there are specific procedures and specific rules that we follow. What type of crossover have you found between family law practice and the estate litigation practice? The crossover is that I think you have to have a really good understanding of financial concepts, of types of assets, and how finances interweave into a family. So with family law, you know, that directly parallels with equitable distribution. What's in the marital estate? What's it comprised of? Is it real estate? Is it stock options? Is it a business per se? A lot of that translates over to estate administration and or estate litigation, because you have to have a good understanding of how those types of assets work and how they would relate to what gets probated versus what doesn't get probated. So for instance, retirement assets always have a beneficiary. Life insurance always has a beneficiary. And those types of assets will fall outside of the probate of wills for the most part. Now I'm I'm gonna gloss over a little bit here because there's also inheritance tax considerations and I'm not directly addressing them here. But, you know, those assets are contractual, right? Life insurance company has a beneficiary. It's required to pay the beneficiary. Estate attorneys often deal with when they create or craft a will, what types of assets are probatable assets. 
And those are things without beneficiaries, like real estate or like investment accounts that don't have beneficiaries that aren't retirement qualified. So a good foundation is for, that you take from family law into estate law is understanding those assets and how they work, how they are valued and how they are best distributed. That's what I would say is a good skill that family lawyers would have if they moved into estate practice. So you just call it, caused me to think of something. Have you ever had the experience either in your practice or just through anecdotal conversations with other attorneys where you've had cases where litigation in the estate arises from an obligation that might be related years earlier to a marital settlement agreement or some other some other contractual provision from a divorce or family law case? Yes, is the answer to that. Not commonly, but it's funny you brought that up because just last week I was modifying an estate plan for a person who had been divorced 20 years ago and still had not bought his spouse out of a professional practice. So it was a, a very, uh, and I thought as, a, as with my family law hat on, boy, this is so uncommon, but it was a, an amicably negotiated settlement and there are still buyout provisions that occur. The practice is still going on. So that's something that overlaps in terms of how I create the revisions to his will, how I would explain to him how that administration would happen if something if, if he were to predecease his his ex-spouse. But yes, I, I often ask when I first meet a client in terms of if they've been divorced, did they have a prenuptial or a postnuptial? I usually review the terms of those documents to understand the implications they would have on the estate planning. And, and for anyone that, that might be curious or concerned that perhaps there's something that's provided for in their marital, marital settlement agreement, you know, spouse A is supposed to leave to spouse B. X, Y, or Z. Is there anything that we can do to, to you know, keep tabs on that? Do we have to basically rely upon the party that's supposed to leave that property to the other to make sure their estate planning is properly taken care of? Is there anything you would recommend that we have in those agreements as an, perhaps an obligation that periodic updates of estate planning have to be provided, something along those lines? Yeah, you hit the nail right on the head. So I think if you're going to have a long-term obligation like that, you should craft into your settlement agreements that updates, any updates to estate planning would be shared with the divorced spouse, with the ex-spouse. Just like you do with like, I think life insurance, you know, oftentimes you secure alimony with life insurance policies. And I used to write in that they would, you know, the deck sheets, the beneficiary designations would be updated once a year. It's also a good idea to do that if you have an uncommon type of a settlement provision where there's a testamentary request or bequest, excuse me, that that be shared with the spouse who is the beneficiary of that. Because wills can be changed up until the day you pass. Right. As we all kinds of questions about whether that would be a valid change in terms of if you're competent or not. But, you know, a will is a document that's only legally valid after you're gone, after you've passed. So let's talk a little bit about competency, though. Though you can clarify as to whether competency and capacity, are they the same thing? No. I think uh, for testamentary capacity, you do have to ensure that your client is of sound enough mind to know what they're creating in terms of a will or a trust or a power of attorney, you know, the documents that comprise a good estate plan. But they don't have to be 100% competent in terms of, you know, if, if they can relate to me who the president of the United States is, how many members of their family they are, who they are. Because oftentimes we deal with elderly clients who may have the beginnings of dementia. So they may not remember 100% what they ate for dinner three nights ago, but they are competent to be able to understand their devising property and coming up with a scheme or a plan for someone to step in and help them with their affairs as they age. 
Okay. So there's a, a higher threshold on the capacity side than the competency side. Yes. That's a succinct way of saying it. <laughs> and, uh, and, and so I, and well, that, I'm, I'm thinking for, for our types of cases, because, you know, we work with a, a whole wide range of people with, you know, varying degrees of, you know, whether age, injury, what have you, illness. And I think it'd be helpful for us to know, you know, what is the standard for capacity and when should we as family law attorneys start to consider whether we need to bring in someone like yourself to help deal with someone that we may not be absolutely certain is able to participate in their case or that we just have questions about whether or not they really understand what's going on? That's a tough question to answer. I think it's so fact sensitive, Aaron, that, you know, just as you take a client as you find a client, certainly if you're involved in a case and you notice that their mental acuity is diminishing for capacity, I think you have to look at a lot of factors. Primarily, is there a medical reason? Is there any type of a medical or a psychiatric diagnosis? And is that getting worse during the course of the divorce proceedings that someone that might appear to you to have full capacity when you start a case, but may suffer from an addiction and you see that start to worsen as the case goes along. When I try to evaluate, I'm not an expert in this issue either. When I try to evaluate, if I really have a question, I usually ask for permission to speak to the client's primary doctor to understand if there's a diagnosis that would affect mental acuity. So that's that's really the best answer I can give you in terms of you, you should be on the lookout to spot issues. And if you're in doubt, yes, it's always better to at least have the person evaluate it in terms of if they need a guardian to step in to help to make important decisions in a divorce. Okay. And just to help me and, and the audience understand, if that guardian is appointed, you know, what's their authority within the divorce action? What are, what are they allowed to do on behalf of that individual? Well, that that really depends on the scope of the court order that appoints the guardian. So if you're midstream in a divorce and a person needs a guardian appointed, then you're going to have to evaluate who that person is, take it through a guardianship proceeding. And there's there's a guardian of the person and there's a guardian of the estate. But I would think if you had a rather severe case, you would have a guardian appointed for both. And then the orphan's court judge usually would address or at least uh, the record would address that there's an ongoing divorce or that proceedings have been instituted would usually allow the guardian to step in to assist if there's any level that the client can participate. I think the court would probably allow that or defer to that. And, and so fundamentally, I guess the, in a situation like that, the orphan's court has now sort of put their stamp on who's going to be participating both as the guardian of the individual, but you said there could also be a guardian of the estate. Is that sort of an individual who now has somewhat overwatch on the marital estate and how it's being distributed, but they're not necessarily, I guess, a litigant in the same way that the guardian of the person is? Well, generally, the same person is appointed guardian of the person and guardian of the estate. Oh. So at least in my experience, I haven't seen different guardians appointed. But Directly to answer your question, yes. And sometimes those are court-appointed persons who may have experience handling being guardians for other persons who have been involved in divorce. Maybe I'm thinking of one person that comes to mind who serves as a guardian sometime who, who was a divorce lawyer and has experience with family law. And in those instances, the guardian is uniquely suited to be able to understand what's going on in the proceedings and, and how the marital state's being valued and what types of settlements would be fair to the incapacitated person versus whether or not the case has to be litigated. The family law case has to be litigated. So you mentioned that that, that person you were thinking of was a was a former attorney. Is it always attorneys who are guardians? What's what's the criteria to be a guardian? It's not always attorneys. 
I guess I was judging my answer or basing my answer on the fact that if you have an incapacitated person that's in midstream in a divorce or going through a divorce, then perhaps an attorney would be a better choice for the court to appoint. But sometimes it can be family members. Sometimes it can be uh, there are guardian services, professional outfits that can offer guardianship services. Generally, those types of outfits would probably not stand in in a divorce case. But that's really up to who files the petition for guardianship. And if, the, if there is any family at all involved, who they would perhaps proffer to be the best choice to serve as guardian, given the personal circumstances. So there's an examination as to who they are. And I assume that has to do with trying to make sure there aren't any conflicts of interest that might exist or right, correct. any kind of bias. Yes, correct. So I think that's good for us to know. I think it's always going to be helpful for knowing that our cases can segue into that estate or that orphan's court world. You know, we do see when divorces, when a party dies in the midst of a divorce, that raises a whole nother set of problems in a case. One of which is, of course, a divorce abatement, which could be an hour long deep dive in its own right. But it does bring to my mind the idea of how do you deal with the spousal elective that exists in our decedent's code? And is that something that you, you've you got experience with, or you can maybe share with us a little bit about what that elective is and why we need to pay attention to to it, and you know, depending on upon the cases that we have? Yes. So the spousal elective, or, or what sometimes is referred to as the forced share, is a traditional concept that would have prevented spouses from disinheriting spouses, you know, given the common law duties that you had to support a spouse, food, shelter. I'm talking traditionally, you know, many decades ago. How do they play out in terms of if a divorce is ongoing? I think, as you know, there's a portion where if grounds are established, but the divorce decree is not yet entered, right? Then you're past the point where, hmm, strike this, Aaron, sorry. No, it's okay. <laughs> I think maybe what we ought to talk about first is, you know, the fourth share, fourth share of what? Yeah. You know, fourth share of what? Are, uh, my understanding is it's about 30, 33%. It's a third, right? It's a third. Yes. Okay. Right. But it's not a third of necessarily every. Is it, right. is it, is it, quali- it's sort of qualified assets, right? Well, probatable assets. Probatable right? assets. Okay. So like, yes. It what's- might be the better way to, right. So as I referenced earlier, there are certain assets that flow and that pass by way of a will, and we call those probatable assets. They would uh, require the process of probate to distribute versus a non-probatable asset, which is an asset that contains a beneficiary designation. And that okay. beneficiary designation could be someone other than a spouse, although- if it's uh, usually depending on that type of the asset, like an IRA or a retirement plan, it would might require a spousal waiver in order for that to pass to someone other than a spouse. So we're kind of talking about that spousal waiver. We're talking about perhaps bank accounts, real estate, if it, if the title doesn't otherwise dictate what's supposed to happen, or or is is re- re- real estate in regardless? I guess would be one question I would have. No, because if you have survivorship rights in a deed then by operation of law, the surviving spouse takes the real estate. And while there may be, again, I'm qualifying how these assets pass versus there there may still be inheritance tax due on a property. Although between spouses in Pennsylvania, that's that's zero, that's zero percent. If there's real estate held as tenants in common or as joint tenants without right of survivorship, yes, those are probatable assets. The other category that comes to mind is any type of a brokerage account or stocks, investments, stock options, you know, that don't have a beneficiary designation, they would all be assets that would be subject to a forced share. Interesting. So okay. when we plan, I'll get back to, I guess, the beginning of this rather than when we plan, we take a look at, you know, what documents are in place. Even an intact marriage, there may be a postnuptial that governs exactly 
what that spouse can or cannot elect. Oftentimes in a pre or postnuptial, you waive your forced share, right? But without and without those types of documents that would intervene, if the marriage is valid and outstanding, in other words, you're not at the point of final divorce decree, then yes, if someone dies, you do have to take a look at a forced share. And as part of the estate administration, the executor or the administrator would evaluate that. Interesting. Okay. So I guess, you know, thank you for your time. And I guess before we wrap up, if you are advising a family law attorney, you know, about this area of law, state litigation, or just sort of the orphan's court arena, what would be the, the main takeaways you'd want for someone in my position to know besides call you if we have problems? <laughs> or call any, any uh, competent, good estate attorney in your county. Look, I was always a, a big fan of to call if you have a question, right? Even if it's not apparent to you on the face, issue spot. That's what good family lawyers do. That's what good lawyers in general do. And call and ask someone who specializes in your practice area that you have a question about to just run it by them. But in terms of if you are getting a divorce, the number one thing I would say, I see often where people are divorced and then after the divorce, they don't update their wills. They don't change their marital will. So that's a glaring issue that I would I would say to family law attorneys as you're finishing your case, it's a good idea to tell your client that you know the divorce has severed a lot of those common law rights and it's a really good time for them to update their estate planning documents. Anytime you have a, a major life circumstance, like a birth, a death, purchase of a new home, retirement, that's a really good time to be looking at your estate planning documents to make sure that they keep up with the circumstances in your life. And then if you have a more, I guess, esoteric or higher level issue as a family lawyer, yeah, for sure, reach out to an estate counsel, or perhaps you have a client who's a beneficiary of an estate or has an issue with a will contest. If they've lost a parent and there's some problem going on with the estate administration, definitely reach out. You know, and, and before we go, because you did just remind me of something that I feel like is a cautionary tale. We talked about not updating things after the divorce decree. Correct me if I'm wrong, but if I have a insurance policy, let's say, and I have my ex-wife listed as the beneficiary, my now ex-wife, never bothered right. changing it. When I die, that money's going to her, right? Whether you intended that or not. Yes. It's a contract so, at law, right? right? So insurance company doesn't necessarily care that the two of you divorced. But I've also seen it go the other way. Sometimes even divorced spouses leave insurance benefits or particular assets. There are plenty of people who divorce and if they share children, they may have an amicable relationship for years afterwards. And if you don't remarry, Aaron, maybe you do want to leave your ex-spouse a little something. But I guess the lesson is, you know, save your client, your client's estate, the litigation fees associated with trying to untangle something like that. Exactly right. Yeah, make well, your listen, intentions clear and make them well-known and update them every so often so that they look fresh. Excellent. Okay, so Mary Kay, we've talked uh, quite a bit about guardianships and their role in the orphan's court world, but is there anything that, that we should know as family law attorneys that might be an alternative to guardianship or, or any type of process or procedure that might be helpful for dealing with situations that might fall a little bit short of that or that might just be a better alternative to having to go through a guardianship process? Sure, Aaron. There's actually a very effective alternative, and it's called a mental health power of attorney. Pennsylvania has a specific statute, and I don't believe a lot of attorneys are aware of this, but very akin to a general durable power of attorney or a medical power of attorney, a mental health power of attorney allows a person to name an agent who will step in and serve as a assistant for them when they're in a mental health crisis 
The form also allows the person to make decisions about the types of mental health treatment, perhaps even particular medications or particular psychiatrists or professionals that they would want to have input or to utilize as part of their treatment. And when this procedure is considered, when a person is not in the throes of an active mental illness, I think it allows them or he or her, to, she or him, to be in control of the decisions rather than taking it through to a full guardianship. It's an effective planning tool. So that's a situation where when you've got someone that is is not suffering from an episode or any or in the throes of whatever disorder they might have, they can come in, they can really work through the specifics of what they are comfortable with, perhaps things they've done in the past, or maybe also things that they don't necessarily want to go through. In the event that they do have an episode, this document would then help give the healthcare providers and anyone that's acting as their agent to be able to really follow their wishes, even if they are articulating some alternative. Yes, precisely. And it's particularly effective for people who suffer from cyclical mental illnesses, such as bipolar disorder, where there are long stretches that perhaps a person is healthy, but when they're in crisis, given that they have done this before, they can express particular treatment options. Excellent. Okay. I, I've, I had never heard of that. And uh, I think for a lot of our cases where we are dealing with people that have some mental health issues, I think that would certainly be a really good tool to be aware of in case we need to help advise sort of on a large, on a broader scale. You know, when people are going through our family law cases, oftentimes they touch on a lot, on a lot of different areas. And this is just another way in which we can help advise the client to take care of that particular need that they may have. And frankly, as an attorney, I think it, representing them, it would help us to understand that if they are going through an episode that we would have some guidance as to what the broader plan is for their care so that we don't have to necessarily have to talk about immediately moving this into the orphan's court for guardianships or any kind of uh, real emergent type of procedures. I think it's a powerful tool to help both the parent who's suffering perhaps from the mental disorder as well as the other custodial parent that if there are parameters in place as to how an episode will be addressed and dealt with, especially where custody is concerned, I think that might be just a very good situation to advise in custody type matters. Oh, without a doubt. And I could even see that being something in which you wouldn't necessarily attach it as an exhibit to the custody order, but you might be able to make it by reference. And, you know, if, if needed, then filed type of addendum to a custody order. So I can see a lot of ways in which we could use that to not necessarily file it as record of an issue. People may not necessarily always be comfortable with that, particularly when they are not suffering from it, but it's there right. if it's necessary and uh, available to the, to the other party to be able to have that temporary, you know, temporary authority to do some things while the issue is happening. It's an interesting idea. Okay. Listen, Mary Kay, I'll, you know, thank you for your time today. Just for our audience, if they want to learn more about estate planning or any of the other uh, work that you do, estate litigation, where are you going to be speaking and where can we find you? My next speaking engagement is at the Montgomery Bar Association, Thursday, April the 20th at lunchtime as part of the Real Estate Committee's CLE, where the topic will be addressing civility in public meetings. Also, I can refer uh, anyone to my website, www.kelmlaw.com, for further descriptions of the services I render. Excellent. Mary Kay, thank you very much, and we appreciate your time. Thank you, Aaron. It's been a pleasure. Thank you to Mary Kay Kelm for joining us today, and thank you for listening to the Pennsylvania Bar Association's Law and the Family. I'm Aaron Weems, and if you have something to share, a topic you want to hear about, or want to keep the conversation going, please contact me by email at aweems at foxrothschild.com or find me on Twitter at Aaron Weems, A-T-T-Y, 
Thanks again, and we'll be back again soon with more ideas and issues for the Pennsylvania Family Law Attorney. Law and the Family is a production of the Pennsylvania Bar Association Family Law Section. To learn more or to join the section, visit the Pennsylvania Bar Association website at pabar.org. And be sure to follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. And to catch up on every episode, join us at anchor.fm slash lawinthefamily. A reminder that nothing in this podcast should be taken as legal advice for any individual case or situation. This information is not intended to create an attorney-client relationship. The opinions expressed are those of the hosts and the guests and don't necessarily represent those of the Pennsylvania Bar Association. Thanks for listening and tune in for future podcasts.